Welcome to the Holistic Resistance Podcast. Uh, this is really an interesting episode because this is an episode where we're going to interview Portia Bede. Um, she's my co-facilitator and she also will be uh, stepping in as a co-host in a lot of ways in this show. And, and she's a critical part of just the overall process of Holistic Resistance. Um, in that landscape, I think it's important for us to kind of interview each other, not kind of, I guess just interview each other. This podcast is always raw, it's always real. We try to do minimal editing, if any. At the same time, we really want to make sure that the experience is authentic and real. Um, that being said, welcome to the podcast, Portia. How are you doing? Thank you, Aaron. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So there's a lot we can talk about, uh, and we'll see if we can kind of fit the 10 hour. I should set my timer, just so I have an idea of, of how much time we can use, because I know we can talk for four hours and still get to everything we want. Right. So that being said, um, one of the things I, I'm curious about is, you know, individuals might have met you in the workshop. They might have actually seen you on videos. They might have heard some of your poems. But they have not a real picture of who you are. And maybe in your own words, could you help help a person understand who Portia is today and how you kind of became the person you are today in a five-minute explanation of your entire life? <laughs> Go. Uh, yeah, so... Um... I am currently, I, I like to look at myself and think of myself as a black woman who is constantly and consistently ever evolving. Um, I like to say that I'm someone who tries to stay real, honest, and passionate about who I am and about the people that I interact with and the spaces that I choose to go in and be be within. Who I am, and, you know, I am a... A daughter. I am a sister. I am a niece. I am a auntie. I have a variety of titles, um, but w- titles that specifically stand out to me is being a sister, and um, that being the reason for that is because I am the middle child of six children. However, um, due to losing my sister at the age of eleven, that kind of naturally put me into being the older sister and with that being said ever since I've kind of taken on this older sister role this older sibling role so for me I like to think of myself as someone who has always been a caretaker a caregiver um, someone who has always and deeply uh, cares for her siblings and loves on them and um, I'm all I am also an artist I, I am a poet so Poetry is, I feel that poetry is a significant part of who I am. And the reason for that being is because I feel that sometimes as a black woman, it can be challenging to truly express what I'm trying to express in words. And it just, I feel like it just flows better in poetry. I feel like that poetry gives me an option of being able to be vulnerable and open and real and in a way and still be heard and in ways that I usually wouldn't be heard if I didn't write through poetry and so like that has been a a tool that has become a part of my healing and nourishment that is a big deal for me and I am also a mentor and I I'm very, very passionate about being a mentor and being someone who specifically focuses on helping uplift young black voices and and black youth and people of color in general 
um, in spaces in which they oftentimes are just kind of, you know, put aside and, and not usually heard or not usually seen, not really being valued for who they are. And I have a strong, strong passion for that because I've been there. I've been that person and, you know, having you, Aaron, step in and be that mentor for me and being someone who supported me and taught me a lot about being able to, um, the importance of being able to pass the baton, the importance of being able to think about the next generation and not just think about oneself. So um, I would say that those are really big parts of who I am. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. One thing I'm curious about, because we spent a lot of time traveling together and supporting each other in multiple ways, and I'm curious about the dynamic of your relationships, um, particularly friendships, all relationships, because I think one thing we, we've adapted over the last 10 years is being able to bring depth, bring authentic mm-hmm. questions, really see people and try to ask questions that help us get to the core of who they are. And, 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 and my journey has been unique in that journey. And an individual that's embraced and, and use the same technique in communication, how has that been for you, being a deep connector as a young adult uh, mm-hmm. engaging in the kind of contemporary world? Mm-hmm. How's that process been for you as also kind of reflecting on who you are as a person and how that's affected how you reach to people? Yeah, that, that's, an, that's an excellent question. Um, I think for me, communication has been something that I, I would say that that's not something that was first and foremost something that was given to me growing up. Mm-hmm. I wasn't consistently taught how to communicate effectively and I'm not talking about like giving speeches. That's not what I'm referencing. I'm talking about sitting down, looking someone in the eye, trying to truly see them, truly understand them and connect with them in a deep way. That's not something that growing up, I was necessarily given that. And as I have grown and um, had the privilege and blessing of being able to learn the importance of deep human connection, it has been transformational. Like, I I don't know how to connect in a you know in a shallow way. I I naturally am just a deep person and I can't stop myself from wanting to know someone in a real honest authentic way. And I think sometimes it can be it's it's sad, but I think sometimes it can be somewhat putting off to to people who aren't used to connecting deeply because it's this kind of this energy of them feeling like um, you're, you're pushing me outside of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to be pushed out of your comfort zone is something that we as Americans don't do well <laughs> is getting pushed out of our comfort zone. But when I think about the way that I communicate, I think that I try my best always to think long-term when I'm connecting with someone and I'm thinking about a relationship with someone, I try to think long-term and I say, what is important for me to know about this person? Mm-hmm. And what is important for them to know about me? Yeah. So that that relationship will flourish. That relationship will continue to grow and evolve. And to me, that has been so important to me 
From high school to college, I've gained friendships and I've lost friendships. I've gained romantic relationships and I've lost romantic relationships. And I've gone through these processes. And if there's one thing that has been so true that I have had friends and romantic partners say to me is that, Portia, I have never, ever had someone care so deeply about me on the level that you do. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if we slow that down, why is that, Aaron? Yeah. Like, why Why are so many people, like, just starting from our families to our friends to our communities, I came in your life in high school. Yeah. I came in your life in college. Why has it been 15, 20 years since some of the people who should be closest to you haven't showed you that deep care and connection? It's something that I witnessed a lot, and not to take over your question, but just to reflect a little mm-hmm. bit, that I've seen friendship after friendship and connection after connection where people really have a hard time slowing down their reality enough to know that someone could care about them deeply, and it's a friendship, or care about them deeply, and it's and it's quick. It's not you know, 20 years of building. That's fantastic, but sometimes... I find that there's a lot of hurt yeah. with people yeah. and, and and not like some people. I have yet to meet a person that would start and bring depth to our friendships. And I've yeah. got exposed to a good cluster of people in a variety of economic brackets. And it sounds like you've had a similar scenario where you've you bring the depth, you bring the questions, you bring the vision, you bring all that to the relationships, either be friendship or romantic. Yeah. Um and a hard part of that narrative for me is that I felt that, and then hearing you feel that, mm-hmm. and and my thing is, it's not less, it's less a question for you. It's almost rhetorical, but is there a place where people can actually slow things down, and and, and one of us is not the one bringing the depth of the relationship? That one of us is not yeah. initiating the questions on it. One of us is not initiating uh, the the complex thinking, um, and I don't mean just complex and like historical facts, but just being able to slow and look at someone and go, who are you? And what is your trauma story? And right. what's the source of your joy? And all these good things that kind of build this ideal connection in a very kind of a practical way. I'm not saying, do you, have you read this one book by whoever, whoever? It's more of just like, mm-hmm. I see you. I want to know your personal history, the parts you want to share with me. I'm willing to sit here and absorb that, remember that, and let it incubate in my heart and mind long enough to then come out with some really beautiful thoughts and questions that speak directly to your life. That simple concept is not seen. So I'm just curious because we just came back from a workshop. And a workshop, when we facilitate workshops, questions and human connections, the foundation blocks of it. Right. And, and so I'm curious if we can just kind of merge from that last question into the idea of keeping that in the, as a backdrop. Looking at Portland, we drove 900 miles there. Mm-hmm. We drove 900 miles back. That's mm-hmm. a 13-hour drive. We did over two days. It was, a, it was a massive emotional, physical calorie burn. And we got to connect with a lot of people in depth. Yeah. But my question is like, as you kind of walked into it and came into rewilding as well on Friday night and kind of started the weekend out, what was that experience like for you? Um, as you reflect back on your kind of first impressions, now we're on the other side of the post, the workshops, we're back at home in the desert, but kind of going in, walking through kind of the emotional journey of arriving to a city you've never been to before in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being a co-facilitator, in several workshops and also supporting me in, in some other areas. So I'm just curious, what was that like for you 
and, and, and kind of give us that journey all the way through that weekend mm-hmm. and then post the workshop thinking around that. Yeah. Um, so I think starting with, starting with Friday and walking into the, the rewilding auction and being a part of that space. I think first and foremost, it, it felt, it felt very comforting and loving to, to be able to walk in with Mindy and her family to be able to like, feel like these are people who care about us and they know us and they're truly trying to, um, do all that they can to help us have a good experience in, in, in any space that we're in, um, <clears throat> because they know the city the most. And so that was something that felt really good to me. Um, and then being able to go and sit down and have pizza and, and hang out with her, her beautiful daughters. That was something that just felt really good to my heart. But I, I, I notice <laughs> I notice um some some tension for me as I was walking into the actual auction space. And and the the tension for that being is because there were select people there that I um had previously seen and had previously interacted with from uh Echoes in Time. And so with that being said, I saw that some of them were busy but there was this, I don't know, there was kind of this this feeling of as though people were looking at me, but they didn't want to approach me. Like, it was it was obvious that I was the only black woman in the space. Like, there, it couldn't be any more obvious. And it was as though they would much rather observe me than connect with me. Mm. And that felt really uncomfortable for me. Um so I found myself trying to stay by your side most of the time and trying to navigate the discomfort of um, the just deep, deep human disconnect that was happening in the space. And it's not just that space, you know, to be fair to that community. I feel like it's an American problem. Like, I feel like there's a disconnection and the way that we truly take the time to deeply connect and see each other. And it's much more comfortable to just sit back with people that you know than to say, here's a new person. What would it be like to interact with her? And the other thought that I was thinking, Aaron, was, is anyone thinking of me? And this this, this is something that just ran through my mind, was, is anyone thinking of me past my skin color. Hmm. Like that was something that kept running through my mind was did anyone stop to get past the idea that there's a black woman in the space. Everyone around me is white. There are no other people of color there outside of me and you. African heritage. African heritage. Yes. African heritage people outside of me and you. And, and, the thought was like, I feel, I feel uncomfortable, but I'm also sh- kind of in a way getting on myself because I'm like, why am I not used to this? Like, shouldn't I already be used to being the only black woman in the space? Like, shouldn't I already be used to being the, the one out, you know? 
Um, so that was something that I had to kind of like navigate emotionally in the space. And then I started feeling better when people who I previously connected with started coming up to me and talking to me and I had a really good conversation, um, you know, um, with people who I interacted with from Echoes in Time. And so that went really well. And then thinking about your talk, your speech that you gave that night, I'm kind of off um, in the corner on the right side and I'm videotaping you and I'm documenting you. And I was looking, I was, I was observing and looking into the um, audience to see just kind of like what I felt their body language was telling me, what their responses were, what their feelings were. And to see these people be able to access vulnerability through music, I thought to myself, there is a disconnection in being able to walk and talk to me. Mm-hmm. But we are so connected through music right now. Yeah. And that felt really good. Like, that brought comfort to my heart. Yeah. And saying that, you may not feel comfortable touching me. You may not feel comfortable coming and being five inches, you know, five feet within front of me. But you do feel comfortable closing your eyes with me and singing Hold On and Stay Strong and Rewild On. It was a moment, it's a moment in that, in that speech, I was watching it today, that they were kind of quiet at first, the first Hold On. And to see them kind of come alive slowly but surely mm-hmm. and, and almost see the place where you can almost hear them working through, I'm not a good singer, it's a spiritual, I'm going to mess it up. So like, this is kind of amazing. Yeah. If we put a little effort into it, it might get it more amazing. And I think that was a really a pivotal place in that evening, for me at least, where I think we organically and literally reached for each other. Yes, yes, that definitely, hands down. And... um you know, what was another concept that was really beautiful for me is I post your speech. Um, noticing people who wouldn't talk to you initially. Yeah, before. Yeah. Beforehand. After taking the time to see you. Mm-hmm. After taking the time to hear you. They felt more open because you opened yourself up to be able to come and try to connect with you. Yeah. And that was really, really powerful to me to notice that when we as black people refuse to perpetuate the stereotypes and choose to be who we are, literally just to stand in our truth, not to try to come and and act or put on a show or anything, but just to say, look, I'm Aaron Johnson. I'm Portia B. This is my truth. This is who I'm sharing. This is what I'm sharing with you. My honest, vulnerable, authentic, real truth. I don't, I don't, I don't think you can ask for anything more. Do you think the people that are attending the workshop and the auctions really could even begin to exhort being the only African heritage person in a building? And and we don't just stop there. 
we said, let's crack open our heart and share it with the people that may are. And, and, and noticing that there's going to be a portion of people that are going to be like, oh, that was great. Peace. Mm-hmm. Just noticing that, that, that magnitude of that weight lifted. And, and I know the answer is like, no, nah, they can't quite comprehend that. But I would say, what would you say the percentage of that room could really understand the opportunity that was given to them by us coming into that space and reaching for them specifically around uh, race and racism. I mean, just pick a number in your estimate. That's not a scientific choice here. Five, ten percent. Yeah. And, and I want to move to the following day. So that was Friday. So if you remember, take us to the first workshop we did that was planned in like five days. Mm-hmm. The Saturday workshop started at 1230. Mm-hmm. We drove to Kyle's house. We've never been there before. Yeah. And we we walk into that space. Tell me about that kind of landing and, and kind of grounding into that workshop on Saturday. Well, I was really, I was really feeling comfort and and I was feeling um, happy because we had just picked up Bryce, and so we had just got Bryce and. So this for context, Bryce is my brother who yes. flew in to help document and videotape the event. Yes, and so us being able to take some time to bond and connect in the car it helped make me feel grounded more and so that was something that really felt good to me because the honest truth is that these spaces require me to get out of my comfort zone like I don't necessarily always feel no I don't feel comfortable doing uh doing work that nine out of ten times makes me stand out as the only black person in the space or black woman in the space. And that's significant because it's not just black person It's I'm the only black woman in this space. Like that's it. And so to me, I I, I feel this energy of like, I, I have, I have a significant amount of, in my heart and mind, I have a significant amount of responsibility. I have, I have stories of amazing black women in my life that I have to carry with me in these spaces that I refuse to perpetuate the stereotype of a black woman in these spaces. These are things that are constantly running through my mind as I'm walking and entering into these spaces. Yeah. Because I have had too many amazing black women in my life who have showed me what it means to be a phenomenal black woman. That I, I I refuse to let oppression, racism, anything of that sort, sexism, define who I am as a black woman. And so when I walk in these spaces, I walk into these spaces with a very focused mindset. And the focus is always higher than my discomfort. Hmm. And so when I walk into these spaces... When I very first walked into the room, and I believe, I believe it was either Chantel or Kyle who were the first people who greeted me, and immediately I felt this kind of like, just like I'm so grateful to have you here, mm. energy, and the fact that I felt that energy helped me feel more comfortable because one thing that a lot of white people who are in this work and we're doing these workshops with. I feel that that they need to understand is that nothing about this work is easy. That's important to recognize because I think there's this mytho- mythology that um, is easy for us. Um, 
mm-hmm. and that we can lift this weight. And I think we can. I think we're capable. But mm-hmm. I think that the calorie, the emotional calorie burn mm-hmm. that we have to um, uh, release, burn, I think would surprise white people. And I think it also speaks to this idea of white people that can look at us in the face, even in our workshop, and say, you know, I know you drove, you got here from Southern California, it was 900 miles. I know you've poured, you know, your personal stories and your part of your heart and... But I can't reach any further. I, I don't know still. Yeah. Um, that still exists. This is not a surprise yeah. to us. But yeah. as a black woman, this tends to be something that I think echoes even deeper, I think, with you. Uh, yeah. Or potentially, I should say, with you. Because I feel like we, we talk a lot about black men being shot. We talk a lot about black men, black men being incarcerated. And we don't necessarily really slow down the black woman's experience oftentimes in these conversations. Yeah. It's this constant divide and conquer energy that white oppression loves to do. And black women have been a part of that kind of being ignored. And so one of the critical parts of you being a co-facilitator in the workshops and having the freedom to leave, to lay down, to rest, to express, to take a session at any point Mm -hmm. um, is about closing that gap and acknowledging that kind of in a kind of natural way, um, of the black woman's voice not being easily erased. And even then, it's still a fight to be heard. And so for me, one of the things that that was significant you bring up in the workshop, in both workshops, is that you wanted to make sure your voice was heard. Yeah. And I just want to talk a little bit about that. Like, express and explain kind of your journey and your determination from not only the, the, the words you share, the emotions you share, but also in the singing at the end the poetry, the beatboxing, you really let a variety of your voices come out. How did you release that? How difficult was that? And what were the awards when you did do that, um, of releasing those voices and singing with the group, with white people? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just want to, first and foremost, you know, thank you for asking that question um, because it brought up a significant question that I was asked during the workshop. And the question was around how I felt as a black woman and understanding the danger that you are putting yourself in as a black man. And that was something that just really, really hit me in the heart. Because one thing that I'm not used to is white people, let alone white men, holding me in their minds and their hearts for any amount of time. And so when I thought about that and I thought about my voice, I realized that to use my voice is a part of the revolution. It's a part of holistic resistance. Because one thing that is constant is the silencing of a black woman's voice. And so how I was able to access my voice in the workshop on Saturday, starting with just my normal voice, was that And I may not quote it exactly right. But Maya Angelou talks about how 
when she walked in spaces when she knew she was gonna feel she was gonna possibly be judged and possibly not be heard and possibly not be seen. She said she carried all of her ancestral strength from the people that came before her. She she would take it into the space with her. And I and I remember hearing that. And I thought to myself, like, if that doesn't inspire you to open up your voice and speak, open up your mouth and speak, what will? And so I was thinking about that when I was there. And one of the biggest things that stood out to me was the people who spoke for me when I couldn't speak so that I could be able to speak. So now that I can speak, I will speak. That doesn't mean it comes easy. That doesn't mean it's not difficult. But how I was able to access that was understanding that there's a power. There's a, there's a grat. There's so, I have such an immense amount of gratitude for those people who stood in the gap for me that I refuse to let oppression silence me. Because to me, that's telling them, you wasted your time. You should have never invested in me. And that's telling them oppression and racism that you're right. That you win. And I refuse to do that. Hmm. So that was one of the biggest reasons why I chose to speak. Rather, if it came with quivering and shivering, rather if it came through music and song, rather if it came through beatboxing, my voice was going to be heard. If not for me, the generations that came before me and the ones that are coming after me. And I'm going to say, for me, as a black woman, it was for me as well. Yeah. Who's your highlight of the workshop? Oh, hands down, the jam sessions. Yeah, that was powerful. Hands down. Yeah. It was transformed. Oh, my goodness, Aaron. <laughs> and I think it happened, too, because... Oh, my goodness. We jammed at the end. So we did a lot of reaching before that point. Oh, yes. Like, that jam, those jams, <laughs> they were just... They were nutrition... That I was needing. Mm. They they nourished my body. They fed my soul. It just felt so. So connected. So real. Like It was like for a minute. For a minute. There was no such thing as racism. Mm. There was no such thing. As white and black. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was just. Humans deeply connecting. And that felt so good. Yeah. Music has a way of doing that. A couple of minutes of uh, escaping and, and breaking down this material. Um, and one of the things I want to talk a little bit about, because I think this is an important part of, of who you are. And that is, when we look at Portia and your family, talk about your sister passing away when she was 11. You were, what, eight or yeah. six when, you, when she passed away? 
Yeah, so she was 11. So yeah, so I was probably like six. Yeah, you were young, but yeah. you quite you, you knew what was happening. You weren't confused about mm-hmm. at least the basic parts of that impact. And that's not the, you know, your life has been intense in that way. And, and I'm just curious about racism is set on your family pretty heavily and attacks your family pretty heavily. If you want to speak to that a little bit, just like what you've gained from being able to look at opposition right in the eye and continue to get education, continue to um, educate yourself and reach for whiteness and dismantle racism as white people um, literally physically attack and try and tear your family apart. Um, How does that material sit with you and, and how do you get up every day and manage to care for your siblings and also to care for yourself and at the same time help white people think well? How do you balance that? Well, I have to choose it, right? That's yeah. the first. That's the first step. Is um, I have to choose to get up and get out of the bed. I have to choose to wake up and face oppression head on. And that's something that I had to learn at a very young age. Um, due to circumstances in my family, I was I was kind of at a very young age forced into adulthood. That's that's the way that I see it. And so, you know, by the age of 13, taking on full responsibility of my household, taking care of my siblings as if they were my children, while at the same time balancing school, I think that gives me... I think all that work gave me the stamina to be able to do this work. Mm. You know? I think it add up. I think that resiliency. And I'm not saying this to be pompous in any kind of form. But I think I am one of the most resilient people I've ever met in my life. Like, yeah, I am so resilient. It is amazing how resilient I am. Mm-hmm. And I know it's resiliency that has me here today. Because oppression has has socked me in the face so many times and I feel that I have hit, I've hit the ground. I've bled. I have been trying to, you know, stumble to get back up and fall back down. But when it's all said and done, rather if it comes from crawling or walking, I get up. I refuse to give up. And you know what I think it is, Aaron, is I, I truly believe that I have to, I had to go through a lot of that work to be able to be strong enough to do this work. I think if you took me and took me out of that that story of my life and what I have endured when it comes to dealing with things from poverty to homelessness um, to gang violence, to domestic violence. That's just like four of those things that have like 10 layers on all, every single one of them. If I didn't go through that, Aaron, I wouldn't be as strong as I am today. And my strength and my resiliency is what brings me to this work because I know that when it's said and done, I have the strength and resiliency to do this work. Mm. 
and the other the other concept around how do I hold white people and my family and my daily challenges how do I hold them all in my heart's mind it's because Aaron I'm so I'm so tired like I am so tired of racism I am so tired of oppression I am I am ready for a life where it's love and connection where we genuinely care for each other where I'm truly seen not just not just given in a speech not just given through in a poetic way not just quoting Dr. Martin Luther King but that I'm truly seen for the content of my character and not the color of my skin And that internalized racism, as well as racism, is dismantled. And I feel that I have that fight, I have that fuel, I have that desire because I had such a hard childhood. Because I dealt with the carnage. Not because, excuse me, because I had to deal with the carnage. Hmm. I didn't have an other I didn't have any other options. You get knocked out when you got tired? No. <laughs> no. I I could well I could have, but I wouldn't have siblings anymore. Yeah. I could have, but I don't know if I'd be here. Yeah. So opting out is death almost for you. It is death. Yeah. I don't get to opt out. And I reflect on that because I find that white people, that's one of the first buttons they want to press. Mm-hmm. They want to opt out and go back to privilege. They want to stop making this fight happen. They have this idea that it was hard. I have self-care routines. As much as I can respect self-care routines, it's kind of surprising how self-care is so not a phrase that's said next to black women surviving and carrying their family on their backs. Yeah, Self-care is not even a part of that narrative. And you found a way to start working on self-care and having a place for yourself now. But I just like to always remind that into these topics because I think that um, specifically the white woman, that's been an area where they hit the opt-out button mm -hmm. because it's so easy to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think of it, the way I think about it, Aaron, is I think about how I, I have been in spaces in which I've heard white people speak about how they feel that black people are lazy. They feel that, you know, when they see black women who are overweight, we just need to lose weight. Um, we need to stop eating so much. Um, you know, the, the, the critique is constantly like, you guys can do better, right? Mm. That's constantly the critique. And what I have to say to that is... Okay, so let's take you, let's just give you a, not even a full snapshot. You get a snap. You don't even get a snapshot. You get an inkling of my life. Let's just take you and let's put you at 13 years old 
and let's go ahead and put you into a household of domestic violence. And we'll just we'll just keep domestic violence there. On top of that, here are three other young human beings whose lives depend on every action that you choose to take or not take going forward. Go. Let's look up 10 years from from that. Are you still dealing with trauma? Are you still trying to manage the carnage of oppression? Which, let me remind you, oppression doesn't stop. It goes nonstop. You don't get breaks. So from that time to now, you still dealt with oppression. You still dealt with racism. You still dealt with sexism. You still dealt with all these things. On top of that, you know what? On second thought, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you're doing pretty good. You know? <laughs> it, it, it's one of the things that you just slowed down a fraction of your reality. We didn't go on detail. The, the 90 years of oppression that directly in your personal history is impacting you today. And I'm not saying... And I, I was, well, I was poor too. And my mother was this. And my dad was this. And... I survived that. And it's interesting because they stop with all their trauma and they just leave out the fact that they also get to be white in that oppression. Mm -hmm. Right? And and that's a simple little fact. It's like, oh, and you get clean air and clean water. You know, like, these are big deals. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, (laughs) in that landscape of of, of oppression, I think the, the white culture that hasn't quite slowed this down has a hard time really absorbing the magnitude yeah. Of black oppression. And it's hilarious in some way and really sick in other ways of how I've been trying to explain this for like 10 years in a, a clear way through my artwork, through my performance art pieces. And it seems that like just recently that everyone's like shocked and surprised and awake. Yeah. So I just really appreciate you slowing that down for us. And um, this is definitely going to be a two-part place. We haven't even got into... Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and then driving home and that whole par- portion of this workshop. But I want to kind of make that another episode. I want to like pause here and just appreciate your vulnerability and your sharing and, and allowing us to really unpack uh, a perspective. Mm-hmm. Because I think to me, this journey is going to continue on, on, on multiple levels. And the relationships you built, excuse me, the relationships you built um, in Portland, uh, in, in, in Northern California, or really playing a key role in, in allowing us to really have faith, have a new hope, and a, and a vision for a culture that we can kind of see the dial move on this thing called racism. And I, I just honor to work and co-facilitate with you. Thank you. And it's great to have you on the podcast. And I look forward to when you interview me. And I look forward to when you host and interview other people. And it's the value you bring, the perspective you bring, the questions you bring to the environment, I think is so important. And I think there's so many things that we get to work on, uh, we get to unpack uh, around racism and social justice and family and our personal lives that we wouldn't normally have a place and a platform to share that we get to share in this podcast. So thank you for what you've shared, but also thank you for what you're about to share. 
uh, going forward in, mm. as being a co-host and a co-facilitator and a part of this kind of thing called holistic resistance. Yeah. Any last words you want to share to the to the audience, to the families, to anyone that listens to this podcast? Any, any last words or thoughts? Yeah, um, I I just want to say that specifically to the people who are a part of this work, understand that your voice does matter, that your actions do matter. And your existence in this work matters. And that we're every day trying to fight for a better world for the generations to come. And that we can find a better way of being able to love one another and connect with one another um, in a in a long-term state. And um, I just want to share a little bit of a song by uh, uh, Bernice Regan Johnson. And... I love this song because I was listening to it and it just, it gives me so much hope. It gives me, it gives me so much hope and it just uplifts me because I know, you know, she, the song um, talks about how there's love somewhere. And the thing that I love about that is that, you know what, that somewhere is right here in holistic resistance, that love, that peace. It's right here in Holistic Resistance. This is where we can find a deep, real, meaningful connection, long-term, long-term sustenance, nutrition for the soul that is so needed. So I just want to share a couple of lines. There is more love somewhere. There is more peace somewhere I'm gonna keep on till I find it there is more love somewhere there is more peace somewhere there is more peace I appreciate not only the song, but the thought. And I always like to leave us with uh, a question. Uh, I always say cross-line inappropriate, and I want to invite anyone listening to this podcast to find my uh, email, find my Facebook messenger, find my cell phone, and text me your own inappropriate cross-line question. Even better, record a audio recording. It might find itself on this podcast next time. But my inappropriate cross-line question for you uh, today is... What is the source of your joy? What is the source of your joy? And when do you often or when do you ever give it up? Mm. All right. That's the question for today. Uh, for this podcast, take it with you. Yes. Sit with it. Yes. Internalize it. And ask it to your friends and family. And uh, send your inappropriate cross line deep philosophical questions to us here at Holistic Resistance Podcast. Thank you so much, Aaron. No problem. Will know my name. I'll rest my head in the prairie, and it doesn't mean a thing.
Cause I'ma keep moving. I'ma keep moving. I'ma keep moving up to higher ground. I'ma keep moving. I'ma keep moving. Moving up to higher ground. Devil way, take me down. There you go. I gotta keep moving. I gotta keep grooving. I gotta keep moving up to higher ground. I gotta keep moving. I gotta keep moving. I gotta keep moving up to higher ground. I will climb to the mountain. I will rest my weary feet. I will walk. I will walk in the van.